Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 37th episode of the RIT Podcast. When the Liberals and New Democrats signed an agreement to keep this parliament going until 2025, it changed the political calculations for every party. For the Conservatives, it means the next election might not be a few months or just a year away. They might have to remain on the opposition benches for more than three years. That's not what the party thought it was signing up for when they kicked off its leadership race. So to chat about what the deal means for the Conservatives and where the candidates stand at this stage of the race, I'm joined again this week by Chad and Tim. Chad Rogers is a founding partner at Crestview Strategy, and Tim Powers is chairman at Summa Strategies. Hey, guys. I think we should rename this the three white guys who wear the pants. What do you think? Will that that get this? That'll get the audience to grow. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet, guys. Okay. All right. Well, good for you. There's time, buddy. There's time. So, yeah, go ahead, Chad. I would say is I'm in Edmonton which uh, like, it's a great day, but I am in Edmonton. (laughs) Well, you know what? We're talking about the conservative leadership race in Edmonton, you know, Alberta is not a bad place to be to talk about it. So let's get right to the news that came out last week, the liberals and the new Democrats getting this agreement. That means that the Mm -hmm. government could stay in power for a lot longer than a lot of the conservative leadership candidates might've thought. Uh, Chad, if you want to start us off, does this have any impact on the conservative leadership race? When something seismic happens, like when tectonic plates move, any geologist will tell you that you can't predict exactly what's going to happen next when like the forces underneath that gird everything decide to shake a bit. And this deal constitutes that. So do I think today it changes the lineup of the leadership or the choice uh, a conservative is going to make on their ballot? No. Do I think it has a massive tremor through the entire political culture? Yes. Mm -hmm. And my suspicion that all of the second order effects, which will affect the conservative leadership, uh, are going to come from the damage this is doing to provincial coalitions. Uh, in changing who's available and who's... So give you an example. The Ontario New Democrats are devastated by this deal mm-hmm. because Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh have said it doesn't matter if you vote New Democrat in Ontario, you can vote Liberal because mm-hmm. they're now basically the same thing. And that's not how those provincial parties feel. That's going to create a different dynamic for Ford. It creates a different sense of pressure on who's putting their dollar and their time where in the race. So I haven't totally mapped it out. The, the one direct effect I would say is if this had happened a month earlier, the National Caucus maybe wouldn't have gotten its way on demanding the leadership happen so fast. So if it had happened a month uh, earlier, I think Pierre Polyev would be, uh, his campaign would be very worried about a longer leadership, but that's, that's a ex post facto kind of assessment. Well, I, you know, Eric, the tectonic plates brought us to the red soil of PEI and God, hasn't that been great for the country, but uh, the, the, the new red orange melage, I actually think it's pretty good for the conservatives for a number of reasons. One, it does create a bit of additional time. And regardless of who wins this thing, they've got work to do because this is not uh, a picnic, as we've seen in terms of the competition among the top three. So there's there's healing time there. That's point one. Point two, there's growing time. So the new leader, regardless if it's somebody as experienced as Sheree or new to leadership as Pierre Polyev or Patrick Brown on the national stage, they all will tell you the more time they have to get their feet to work through the the kinks is a good thing. The third is, again, if you're the conservatives and you're looking for a new voting pool, you probably can fairly assume that when the life of this thing runs its course, and I don't think it's going to be till 2025, I think it'll unravel for different reasons before that, there are going to be a, a, a bigger pool of Canadians to fish in who are saying, all right, what have the last seven, eight, nine years been about? What have all these investments meant? 
How is it impacting us? It plays right into the conservative wheelhouse of economic and fiscal management. So yeah, it may suck uh, for three candidates who hope they would be getting a shot at running for the prime minister in, in, a, in a year or 18 months. They may have to wait an, an extra year for that to happen. But in the long run, it may benefit all of the conservative party because this could be the undoing of that new national coalition that Justin Trudeau struck together. And apparently the National Capital Commission has completely replaced the linens at Stornoway. So it's probably a nicer spot to spend a couple of years. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, you know, if you're looking at it from the outside, someone who's not involved with the party, you would say, like, look, the Liberals and the New Democrats, you know, they seem to be owning the left and the Liberals seem to be abandoning the center. So there's an opportunity for the Conservatives yeah, to take that vacuum. But do members think that way? Are members going to be like, oh, we should go to the center? Or does that really change that calculation no, at no. all? The Liberal coalition loses the center uh, based on time, arrogance, and corruption. So when uh, that center, that that Paul Martin Bleu voter moves away from the Liberal coalition, it's fatigue-driven. It's because they're spending too much. Uh, they've gotten too arrogant. Uh, there's corruption around somewhere on a file. And we have to wait to see if that emerges. I don't think it's the deal unto itself. Other than, you know, for the 2% of Canadians that are fiscal hawks that actually watch the medium-term forecast coming out of the Department of Finance, if you take one-time royalty revenue, which we're uh, accruing right now, largely because of uh, supply chain issues and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and spend that on structural entitlement programs that are a result of this coalition deal, you put us so much further structurally underwater. I mean, right now, remember, the Department of Finance says we won't balance the budget again until the mid-2050s, and the current update says it could be 2085. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a that's a pretty harsh number to say only your grandkids might emerge from the current bill. Uh, but very few Canadians like spreadsheets or doing math. So that only sells to the 2% of us that read the medium term uh, uh, Department of Finance forecast when they I, I don't know what you're talking about, Chad. Everybody likes spreadsheets. <laughs> no, no, we, we like line bed sheets. Come on, Eric, with the depends. But what I, I chat to your point about the voters. Um, yeah, it may not have what it may actually further embolden conservative voters because you, you know, the, the stupid old nostrum coalition, coalition, coalition has been brought out again. It's not a goddamn coalition. But if that word uh, gets conservative voters emboldened, then that means they will continue to be more engaged or as engaged as they are in this leadership race, which they were, as we saw by the number of candidates prior to the announcement of the coalition. So a delay is actually in everybody's benefit. And I don't think it's very difficult to stoke enthusiasm for this. They're, you know, on the on the blue liberal side, the Martin liberals that uh, Chad was talking about, there are many of them who, uh, Chad, I'm sure heard from, you probably heard from them too, who are just aghast at this deal. They, they are totally uh, upset that Justin's big play has been to sign an expensive left winger and almost forsake the center. Um, so that, that conservatives will be aware of that and will be driving their candidates to speak about how they will attract those people during the leadership race. And, and remember, there's something fundamentally anti-democratic in a parliamentary first-past-the-post system when you do these deals. The, the Canadian people soundly rejected everything that the Democrats put forward in the last election. They now are going to be sworn in and briefed on cabinet confidences and have the budget tilted in their favor. That is not what Canadians voted for. 
I mean, a lot of liberals probably would have had the NDP a second, right? So I'm not sure if a lot of those people would be all that upset about it. And if you combine those two people, then you get to a, you know, a pretty big number. Well, then um, why don't we just split the difference and say the party that actually won the greatest number of votes and the second greatest number of seats in the largest opposition in history, let them govern because they have a more coherent coalition that more Canadians voted for, right? Like you have to accept the outcome of the election. And and the, the number two in the last election wasn't what the Democrats offered. It was what conservatives offered. In fact, I would argue maybe it was number one. I, I'm just glad Chad, uh, Chad didn't channel Rachel Harder there because I'd have to I'd, I'd have to intervene. On, Isn't on it funny with the word <laughs> dictator? that when liberals use it for a decade against Stephen Harper, it is stylistically graceful. And when one conservative engages in hyperbole, uh, it's basically the January 6th riot has occurred in Ottawa uh, <laughs> during a parliamentary session. Okay, okay. Now, listen, I don't want to put on the shaman's the outfit standard. here and storm well, except on this one, I know Eric probably didn't want to talk about this, but what the hell, uh, except on this one, this particular MP has a pattern. And as we both know, as, and as Eric also knows, conservatives, yeah, yeah, double standards, guess what? There's lots of them in life, so let's be smarter about them all. The Horners used to punch people on the floor of the house, and it recovered. It's not that big a deal. Okay, yeah, well, yeah. how's Will Smith doing, by the way? All right. Yeah, I think you just stole the joke out of my mouth. Um, yeah, all right. I will. I will defend democratic practices. I think it's completely fair to do this, and it's a, you know, voters if they don't like it, they get to choose next time if they think it was anti-democratic. But I wanted to talk about one little thing that. Tim, you had mentioned about the time, that this gives time. So you could see it in the way that you just said that it's time to um, heal the wounds, to repair the fissures. But is it also time for idle hands to get kind of upset with the uh, results of the leadership race? Conservatives idle hands? No, that's never happened. Yeah, that can happen. Of course it can happen too. But again, it's going to depend on the skill of whomever the new leader is to manage those idle hands and, and put them to work. Good leaders uh, have managed to found tasks, find tasks for people to keep them keep them busy. And I, I think there's lessons from the last two leadership um, leaders of where things didn't work and perhaps partitioning people apart from roles that whoever wins will want to pay attention to. So you don't have that idle hand scenario, Eric. I think you have to remember that in the new conservative party post Harper, generally the new leader gets a, a clean first year. Uh, we're yeah, not really right. as bumpy or chaotic or civil war minded as, as uh, history would tell you we should be. Uh, I use the old maxim that, that I steal from the Republican Party about how Republican and Democratic nominations are different, which is conservatives uh, uh, fall in line where liberals fall in love. Uh, uh, conservatives will give the new leader and the new team a chance uh, straight through to the general uh, on a federal level. Uh, and even when you are as incompetent as Aaron O'Toole and you leave Leslie Lewis out of your shadow caucus and do things that are intentionally divisive and make fun of all the people you said you would support when you were running for leader, he still had a clean shot to his first run and people didn't get in his way. Now, there's one thing I want to talk about, and I, I want to frame this in the right way, um, you know, because you look at the president of the United States, who is, um, you know, not a young man, and that's perfectly fine. Um, but Jean Charest, when he got into this race, the prospect was that there probably would be an election yeah. within a year. Now the next election is three and a half years. And I looked back at the history of it. If Charest wins the conservative leadership and becomes prime minister in 2025, assuming it lasts, he would be the oldest person to become prime minister since Charles Tupper. Uh, which was a long time ago. Ram of Cumberland, as he was known. <laughs> yes. 
The Ram of Cumberland. If people want to look up why he's called that, they should uh, call yeah. Chad. Call Chad. Yeah, call, call Chad, Chad and um, don't tell your children why. Um, but yeah, does this have any? Like, was he planning on this kind of long haul? Because 2025, he was expecting he might be three years into his first mandate. Probably not, or certainly not, I guess. I guess that they were looking at the, what, normal 18-month window that would come up. But, (laughs) you know, the golden age isn't in vogue. It wasn't just Biden, right? I mean, Trump was 70 when he won. I think if you're fit and you're vigorous and people can see that and your enthusiasm, they're not going to give a damn about your age. Um, but Sheree may look at it and say, this may influence what Sheree does at the midpoint of this race. If, if things are not going the way he wants and maybe Patrick Brown has some momentum, maybe he makes a decision because he doesn't, you know, he wants to have some influence if he can't win to step out earlier, as opposed to going to the longer haul and just grinding it out to the end if he were going to be prime minister in 18 months. I'm not saying I've heard anything like that. I certainly have not. But I don't think that the age factor is as but important. How does Scott Atchison feel? Uh, yeah. Because Scott Atchison's probably going to come ahead of Sheree in the final. Uh, so I wonder how he feels about it. I wonder how the Dalton guy from the West Coast that I had to Google, uh, who it turns out is a very good member of Parliament, uh, I wonder how he feels. I wonder how all the other people who are going to do roughly as poorly as Jean Charest in this race feel about the timeline. Uh, this is a race between Patrick Brown and Pierre, two young, uh, vital, next-generation candidates. Uh, Charest's age isn't his problem, his total... Um, uh, allergy to conservatism is his problem. Well, we're talking about Shere. Um, You have him in the same level as Scott Atchison, which is interesting, but he had sort of a relaunch, we could call it that. He went to Quebec. He had a much bigger event. He seemed to be, you know, a little bit more comfortable with the how that went with compared to his Calgary launch. Um, Chad, you still seem pretty low on Shere. Uh, both of you, not, has your view on not him? Not as a human. Uh, not as a human, as a, he's as a pretty great winner. guy. I think he's a great speaker. I work for him. I like him a lot. I just don't understand what his proposition is for the Conservative Party, because every time I hear him speak, he seems to say, I'm going to mount the official apology uh, to the country on behalf of Conservatives for how we've behaved. And I, I don't know how you win a vigorous proud, pretty strong movement. Look, when I worked for Sheree, it was a two-seat party and we were begging Mm -hmm. the bank to keep the credit card on uh, uh, to make flights across the country. We didn't have 30% of the vote as our floor. We had seven. Uh, We didn't have fundraising coming in and beat the governing party. We didn't. So I'm I'm a little offended as one of the people who's actually hung around for the last 15 years, like Tim, working on the experiment of the new party, that he's arrived to tell us he's here to fix us. And I, I'm, I'm not sure who the constituency is. And I've seen the Zoom uh, screenshots of his chats that are circulating on social media. And and look, I, I don't know if the campaign's sponsored by Moses Snymer or that's just where they're at, they're, they're advertising, but uh, uh, like I'm old and 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 uh, I, you know, I look at those chats and I, I worry that everyone's gonna survive the call. Oh boy. He's on, he's on fire. Do you put him in Edmonton and the plot thickens or less, I guess, depending on how you take the, I am not as dark on Mr. 
Shere's prospects as Chad is. Um, but I, I, I guess the jury is still out for me on where it's going to go because I see mixed reports. I was uh, pretending I was Eric Grenier with hair, by the way, Eric knows that's nice hair too, uh, on VOCM last week in Newfoundland. And I had him on and as Chad knows in that sort of audience, he's great. Uh, perfect, large, you know, traditional radio market, few laughs, couple of policy points, uh, some comments about Newfoundland. The audience loves that stuff. And he was very good. And there was a ton of positive feedback about that. Um, but he's preaching to the crowd that will support him for the most part in Atlantic Canada. Um, but where does he go beyond, beyond there? You're right. You're seeing more of him prominent in, uh, prominent in Quebec uh, stories of him. But what's fascinating for me, and this may be why Chad takes the perspective as he does, there's two very different styles of campaign between Mr. Charest and say Patrick Brown and, uh, and Pierre Polyev. Mr. Charest is following a very traditional leadership campaign route. Lots of traditional media, lots of broad public exposure, more traditional events, though he is moving into to Zoom and, and other realms. Whereas Pierre Polyev is basically invisible in that circle because he and Patrick Brown is entirely invisible because they're micro-targeting through very established conservative media channels, their audience. I don't know what that means, but it has to mean something about where the engagement is. So Charette probably has to do a lot more of what they're doing if he can get in there. And if I don't hear the same message as Chad, but I, I do hear a message that will not resonate with some longtime conservatives is about the, you suck a little bit. I don't know if he's calling for the great apology. And a lot of the hardcore will get their back up about that saying, buddy, what the hell are you talking about? Now, if there is a person who can persuade them that this is what I mean and why I'm saying it and what we need to do to win. Jean Charest still possesses those skills, but he's got work to do. There's, there's no doubt about that. It, it look for the code words in the Charest campaign, um, adult conversation and grownups. And that's when uh, the great patronizers are there to explain to you how you're doing everything wrong, but don't worry, they're back to show you how to do things right. Uh, and there are lots of campaigns that fall into this trap. Uh, and with June 3rd uh, uh, right around the corner, I don't know that they're going to have enough time to pivot to their second or third campaign strategy in time, uh, where I was at breakfast this morning and the person I was with uh, happens to have a spouse who is uh, of Tamil Canadian heritage and uh, evangelical Christian. Uh, they've already heard from both the uh, uh, the conservative organizers in their church from the Polyev campaign, sorry, the Polyev campaign, the Leslie Lewis campaign, and the Brown campaign, uh, and the Brown campaign first and maybe frequently, right? The organization in this leadership is happening, speaking to the folks who sign up first to show up and pay for membership. Um, the other weird thing, because on, on these podcasts, we often talk about the weirdness that the general public would never be exposed to. Parties have this great scam that they run where when you go, you, you never remember to renew your membership because you right. give money and you confuse giving money with your membership. And then a leadership or a nomination happens and you get told you got to pay your 10 bucks or your 20 bucks because you're not up to date. And then you yell, well, I just sent a check to you guys. You must be up to date. 
But the parties years ago started this great scam, which was to buy the five-year membership so that people like Tim and I could buy it and then go, this won't happen to me again for the next five years. And then 10 months later, you show up and they tell you your membership's out of date. Uh, the Conservative Party, whatever their new computer system is, sent all members this extremely helpful email about two weeks ago telling us whether or not our member was current membership was currently up to date and letting us renew online and reminding us. And it was awesome. It was a sea change solving the uh, the traditional, uh, those of us who believe we get ripped off by the five-year membership every year. All right. Well, <clears throat> I'll look to five-year memberships from my website and see how that works out. But, um, you know, you are talking about how that other kind of strain of, of uh, contact. And when I saw Poliev uh, talking a lot about blockchain stuff uh, this past week, now I'm not a blockchain expert. I'm not even a blockchain novice. Um, but it doesn't seem like he's talking to a very broad swath of the general electorate and probably not a huge swath of the Conservative Party membership, which, as you mentioned, um, Chad, uh, you know, Zoom calls are, are uh, a challenge to make it through. So who is he talking to there? Or is that just a personal interest of his? Uh, have you ever read the, the book Sticky? Uh, it's like a marketing book. I think Chip Heath was the author's name. And he invented this concept that sticks around that some issues just have for a period of time a stickiness, yes. that there's a that there's it stays in people's minds. It, it creates passionate endorsers and communities that get super intense. A few years ago, uh, a friend of mine who was a U.S. pollster discovered the stickiest new group was around vaping and people who yeah. uh, vaped were passionate about vaping. There were hundreds of thousands of them. They were under the surface, but they were there and they were organized. That stickiness now is all crypto. The people who uh, uh, do crypto are passionate about crypto. It's like that old Alexander Keith Spear motto, right? Those who like it, like it a lot. Um, so I think he's being smart. He's saying there's a community of hundreds of thousands of Canadians who passionately sit down on their devices every day and study and share and focus on something. And he said, I'm interested in it too. That's pretty good retail politics. Yeah. Yes, on the retail politics. I mean, it's going to create brand problems for him afterwards because there's a whole uh, legitimacy of patronizers and, and those who aren't patronizing who will question the validity of, of crypto coins, their life, uh, Bitcoins, excuse me, cryptocurrency and, and their life and well-being. Uh, so he'll get labeled as wacky as he has been. Uh, but Pierre appears fearless in making those choices at the moment. It's like, I don't care. Um, and again, we'll see. I, just one example to Chad's point, I was noticing as Pierre made his crypto crazy comments, because I do believe they're a little too far out there. Uh, there was a real estate person in Toronto who was defending him. And according to that real estate person's follower list on Twitter, he had like 72,000 followers. Now, all of them could have been bought. I don't know. But the point being, the aggregation effect of, of getting this out there. And then you had, this was the most comical, um, Polyev's campaign talking about how he's the most exciting conservative politician in generations and he's connecting with young people. I'm like, well, man, you haven't lived very long, but again, the point there being youth engagement, engagement with youth activists. This isn't about human beings. This is about the tip top Taylor blue suit boys. No, they're probably more Harry Rosen, I guess, in this era, aren't they, Chad? Or maybe Tom Ford. No, that's Jagmeet. Anyway, point being, they're connecting to very deliberate audiences to try and get them to validate Pierre by signing up a membership for a membership and voting in a leadership race. 
But crypto, though, is also, to your point, Tim, on, on generational divide, remember, yeah. the yeah. asset class creation and the promoters is about one of the few generational splits we're seeing economically post-COVID, which is um, older folks have hoarded their assets and are now building moats around them in things like real estate, where their own children are looking yeah. at their greedy parents opposing new development laws that let them have houses that were like mom and dad's when mom and dad want to just increase the value of the dirt they're sitting on. And, and the movement around crypto isn't just uh, a tech one. It is a generational divide saying, if you create barriers to asset classes that do not give us a point of entry, we will force new asset classes on you and we will trade those uh, because you have shut us out of your market in real estate, uh, in capital investing and made the barrier for entry too high uh, for your own children. And, and Pierre might be tapping into a moment of economic transition as the baby boomers finally lose their grip on controlling all of the levers. I say this and I have my gold bars buried under the garden here. Are you saying that's not the you've right always, approach? You've always been pro gold standard. I mean, yeah, been- listen, there's nothing wrong with the gold standard, but I, the, I, I would only push back on this because I think it's, it, it, it again speaks to something we really haven't talked about yet on this podcast. And that is the generational divide, which I think is real in this leadership race. I think a number of people have spoken about it. We're all three of the same generation. So not necessarily capturing those behind us who are engaged in all of this, but there is also the the the, the, the equally strong likelihood on crypto, Chad, that it is the Yukon fool's gold as well. So yes, I agree on your entry into market, but it also can just be a damn crazy idea. It could be the jet ski of this particular leadership uh, race. Uh, look. I think Pierre was smart enough to talk about the blockchain as a technological platform, not just crypto as a currency. Yeah. And I think it, it 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 is part of our future economy already, and we've got to recognize that. It's not a stable asset class necessarily yet, but remember the entire, uh, uh, the second largest economy in the world, China, uh, banned it, and it got stronger, not weaker. Um, it's, it's not going anywhere. All right. Well, thanks, uh, guys, for putting me in your generation. Um, let's move on to Patrick. Um, you guys mentioned... Uh, um, you know, that he is, you know, he's kind of having a, an organizational kind of under the surface kind of thing, right? But then he gets an endorsement from someone like Michelle Rempel Garner, who probably one of the bigger endorsements we've seen in the camp in the campaign so far. Um, does that signal to current conservative members, people who, you know, he's not just signing up, but people who are already members that he's an acceptable candidate? It, it did seem like a bit of a surprise that she would go behind Brown. It was a huge surprise. I mean, I in in my family, my husband and I can quote, can relate almost any scenario back to a quote from Hunt for Red October, a film that if we accidentally stumble across it on television, we can't stop watching it. Uh, this would be the crazy item of this campaign uh, of just the didn't see it coming. Wow, that got some attention. Uh, I think there's a plus and a minus. The plus is Patrick Brown just further blunted all the accusations about his inappropriate uh, behavior with women by having a strong female defender as a co-chair who's willing to confront the issue and did in her first media uh, pieces. So he has someone uh, who's willing to defend him on his truly reprehensible behavior, like having an employee in his bedroom using alcohol, engaging in a kiss and arguing whether or not it was appropriate. Um, uh, Number one, but number two, endorsements don't mean anything. If endorsements meant anything in these races, um, Christine Elliott would be premier. Like there'd be a whole bunch of the, the endorsements just because the members don't deliver the ridings in one member, one vote, like they used to in delegated conventions. So I, I think as an endorsement, it's overstated as a senior, super politically savvy, super strong communicator, Patrick Brown just added a giant asset to his campaign. 
Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, if she can be, if, if Michelle is also allowed to have the opportunity to be a giant asset to to that campaign. But I have to say, I don't know about Chad, but it's really hard to find evidence. And, and again, it's purely deliberate, I'm sure, of where Patrick Brown is and, and what he's doing. He's clearly doing things. But I, other than the Rempel announcement, and I think there was some video he posted in reaction to the Liberal NDP deal last week, he's nowhere to be seen. And I just find this so fascinating because, again, Chad and I grew up in an era where the, the, the would-be leadership candidates would all be interviewed by the, the major news organizations. They would make sure they spent the time cultivating traditional media. Uh, they don't need to do that anymore because their own direct-to-consumer marketing channels exist. But it does kind of delay a little bit of the inevitable, which I think party members do want to get at, which is how are you, Patrick, going to deal with the scrutiny of difficult questions around the allegations that brought down your leadership? Pierre, how are you going to... manager being indicted for murder this week. Yeah, yeah well, that too. Got some, you know, there's and, some and, hair on that too. And, and Pierre, how are you, you? You keep ducking tough questions on the convoy and, and all of these, these things are going to come up. You're going to have to defend them at some point in time. If if as a potential voter in this leadership race, this is a good indicator of how the leader would be leader would perform in difficult circumstances. So while I get the DT seed, direct to consumer marketing, I do worry about the avoiding the traditional media and the practice that gives you in learning to make a broader, a, a, a nuanced and effective argument to a broader audience. But if you took your entire $7 million allowable expense and used that to pay Tim Powers to be your senior strategist, <laughs> uh, that is his discount rate. Um, he would That's say- That's my Crestview rate, actually. Uh, he would say- I don't want you wasting any time on general audience till after June 3rd because yeah. you're, you're a new member acquisition machine until then. So while Tim's point, that doesn't mean uh, you should necessarily follow that advice, but I could imagine the campaign teams are saying to the leadership candidates, I want you doing nothing uh, but dialing and meeting for new member acquisition and we'll do all of the cleanup, fix up, uh, chart the path narrative work after June 3rd. I can imagine that's a pretty big tension from the campaign professionals. We'll also have some debates. We don't have the, uh, the dates yet. So that'll be a moment when <clears throat> they will get some testing. And it'll be interesting to see what the candidates are challenged on by, the, uh, by their rivals, right? Um, yeah, because also the questions would be different than what they would get from the media, right? Yeah, for sure. I'll also challenge the party because the party, when it runs its own, own debates, cares about the party brand. And the last two rounds of debates, which were hobbled by, you know, a lot of candidates on the table, and it's, it's hard to do a debate with a lot of people, but by not having the debates run by a media organization, the, it was a lot of soft glove. Uh, it was a lot of uh, pass the cookie. Um, there was the, they were too risk averse and they didn't let front runners go at each other and test each other. Um, so I, 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 my hope is that they recognize the debates actually have to be a hard proving ground, not simply, um, a branded, uh, two or three hour, uh, commercial for the slate on mass. And yeah. I think Eric, one, one is coming up soon enough with what the rebranded Manning Center, True North, Strong and Free, or whatever the organization is called, are intending to the best of my knowledge, to have a debate, and I think that's in April, isn't it, Chad? Sometime in April, I believe that is. 
Yeah, well, the conservative debates have different thresholds in terms of how much money you have to raise and all this kind of thing to be involved in it. So if it's an outside debate, then maybe you get more candidates. Uh, right now, though, there's the last thing I, time I checked, I think we're at 11 or 12 names um, who have at least expressed an interest in running. Now, none of, not there won't be 11 or 12 on the final ballot. Some of them won't raise the money and, and, and won't have the member signatures, but I'm not sure how you make that decision about who you invite at this stage if you're having a if you're having a debate pretty early. Um, I want so to there's go there's ahead, Chad. Draft Tim Powers campaign. So for those uh, <laughs> listeners, viewers online, uh, you know, send your checks, uh, send yeah. for you because there is no write-in on the ballot. If we want to get Tim on the ballot, as I do, we have to act quick. Yeah, send your you. checks on care 18th, of the writ, please. On April 18th, I'll be running the streets of Boston and Chad and his group have kindly donated to that. So I appreciate that. Oh, there you go. Tim is running. Um, the Boston Marathon, Eric, to fight melanoma. So there you go. A little promo there. There you go. It's a good cause. Okay, so let's uh, close with this. And it's something that we'll do in the podcast. I did warn you about it. I know you guys don't like making predictions, but I, I did warn you. Um, so I just want to have you, both of you say where you think things are right now by identifying the front runner, pretty self-explanatory, the challenger, who's the main opponent to the front runner, and then a dark horse candidate that I'm letting you guys decide how you're going to... Hmm decide what that is, whether that's just the person in third or the person who, you know, could end up finishing eighth or could end up somehow winning, whatever you want to define that. But I want a front runner, a challenger and a dark horse. Uh, Tim, do you want to go first? Oh, the pressure. It'll be like my son's pokeball here. See, it's open and closed, open and closed. Uh, front runner, I think Chad and I will agree on this one. That It's still Polyev. I've seen no evidence that it's anybody else. Um, challenger is not as clear to me at the moment. I think based on public notoriety, probably Sheree. I'm uncertain about Brown. Nobody else has moved up, I think, into that top three. Dark Horse, I may, Chad and I may agree again here, and that's problematic. It might be Scott Akinson. He's doing a lot of work, uh, reaching out to a lot of different people, popping up in different places, has a positive message and has a caucus seat. But the, and the other seven candidates, I've not seen or heard much about at this juncture. I'm this week going to surprise Tim and disagree. Uh, <gasps> I think Patrick Brown has pulled into the front runner's position. Uh, hmm. His national organization, particularly targeting new Canadians and hmm. uh, cultural voters, has moved into high gear and is wildly successful. Uh, and he is onboarding new members at a faster rate than the Polyev campaign uh, uh, has been prepared for. I think that there was a hope that Patrick's sort of moral disqualification would slow down his campaign, and I don't think it has uh, one whit. So I think Patrick Brown is the front runner right now in the campaign. Mm. I think the challenger is Pierre, who has to prove uh, that he can grow uh, as fast as Patrick is growing, uh, not just command the current party as it existed the moment the race started. And uh, I won't use the term dark horse. Uh, I will say the the most interesting other candidate for me is Leslie Lewis, because uh, her proposal to the values voters in our coalition, they believe now, I think, uh, if you are uh, strong on issues of conscience, if you are uh, a particularly uh, uh, devoted uh, religious uh, participant in a religion, I think that you now think your number one spot on the ballot on principle uh, belongs to Lesson Lewis. And then you're deciding who gets your number two, uh, recognizing that the number two may become the person who uh, who's the leader. 
I, I'm going to actually give my own as well. I, I agree with Tim in that it's Polyev and that I, I, I don't know enough about what's happening on the inside to say anything about Brown. So I do need to see some fundraising data. I need to see something. So I'll still give Shore the challenger, but I agree that the, uh, the third spot goes to Lewis. I think that she uh, has the potential to surprise and also be a kingmaker and, and queenmaker, I suppose. Um, just a final thing, just on Lewis, because I do think it's interesting. And we don't need to talk about this very long. But right now, if she falls off the ballot, who gets her support? Mm. Uh, I don't know, because I don't think, as we saw in the last race, that leadership candidates get to bequeath or command that. Uh, this isn't like the Dion, uh, Kennedy deal. Uh, I think voters are making that decision themselves, which is why every campaign has to have two separate uh, plans. Plan one for acquisition and number one position support, and plan two for how do I appeal for, for uh, uh, second choices on the single transferable ballot. Hmm. Yeah, no clue. No clue. I think but Chad's on the mark there. I think that's probably right. Easy transfers are hard to do. It's like a bit like crypto. You know. can, I, can I just throw out one more crazy thing because of the world we live in? And it Please does. Do. Um, look, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine makes foreign policy important in this leadership. It's yep. going to have more energy uh, because people live in a world that they recognize as scary. Conservatives tend to view themselves as guardians of our military and security complex. I think after the budget, you're going to see more conservative dialogue about what we need to do uh, to make the world safer. But if anyone wants to do it in the interim, I have no financial instrument, but a bunch of crazy Canadians have started a charity called St. Javelin, where they are uh, the, the, the train. This is a, the, the Virgin holding a Javelin anti-tank missile. Uh, <laughs> these crazy kids have already sold $2 million in merchandise that can awesome. them everywhere in t-shirts and stickers, raising money to support uh, the Ukrainians who are valiantly defending their homeland. But uh, watch for a major foreign policy switch, which foreign policy doesn't always enter leaderships. And it's going to enter this one big after the federal budget. All right. Well, if we do see some discussion of that, We'll talk about it next time. So thanks a lot, Chad and Tim. I really appreciate you coming on again. Thank you. Thanks again to Tim Powers and Chad Rogers. Wanted to mention a pretty big development out of New Brunswick this past week. Chris Austin, the leader of the People's Alliance, announced on Wednesday that he and his only other caucus member were leaving the People's Alliance to join the governing progressive conservatives and that the party would be deregistered. The People's Alliance had 13% support back in 2018 and held the balance of power in a minority legislature. They took about 13% in ridings where they had candidates in 2020 and still won two seats. The party has been a fixture of New Brunswick politics for over a decade, but now it seems the Premier Blaine Higgs won't have to worry anymore about his right flank. Two by-elections in the Miramichi area are scheduled to take place in June. This is an area where the People's Alliance has had strength in the past, so we'll get an idea of the electoral impact of this move by Chris Austin pretty soon. Okay, that'll be it for the Brit Podcast. If you like the podcast, I hope you'll give it a rating and review in whatever podcast app you use. And if you're listening through the Brit.ca, thanks for your support. Okay, that's it for this week. Keep safe and thanks for listening.